I'll read the first section, verses 1 to 16. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises and with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Well, I'm going to jump right in to this morning's sermon. Let me just take a quick drink. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I just want to ask you a question When was the last time you were tempted? Now, it could be something serious, it could be something silly, but just think, when was the last time that you can remember when you were tempted? Last year, about springtime, it was like April or May, we had a guest missionary staying with us at the church, and Stephanie and I decided to do something called the Whole30 Diet. And what this is, it's a, it's a diet for 30 days, there's a start time and an end time, 30 days. And it's an elimination diet, which means we, can't, we couldn't eat gluten, dairy, sugar, soy, grains, or even snacking. So you might ask, well, what do you eat? Uh, chicken and veggies. <laughs> so during this Whole30 diet, we were about week two into it, and we invited the guest missionary couple over to our house along with another church family, and we thought it would be a good idea to order pizza. Now... I didn't realize this, but I picked up the pizza, and little did I know, as I was just picking it up from the corner here, and a 45-second drive to my house, I was tempted by the smell, by the steam coming off the pizza while I'm in the car with it. I smell the cheese, the, the, the bread, the sauce, the garlic knots, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm rushing home, okay, I know there's a stop sign, I'm going to roll through it, right, I need to get home, and in my head, I'm like, okay, what if what if I can just, like, just have a little, a little taste, right? Just, just a little bite won't hurt. But with this diet, if you 
make a mistake and eat something that you're not supposed to, that starts you over. So we were on like day 14 or, or 13 or something like that. And if I ate something, then that means I'd start back at day zero. So the whole way home, I'm being tempted. I'm like, oh, this pizza looks so good. Come on, it smells so good. And I'm trying to like question, okay, well, what if I convince Stephanie that we can just like chew it and then not eat it and swallow it? Is that okay? So I'm being tempted, by, and this is silly, right? But I'm being tempted by pizza because of this elimination diet. And the ride home was miserable. But not only that, but then I gave the pizza to everybody, and as they're eating pizza, I'm looking around, and I'm like, hmm, I can't wait to eat my chicken breast and green beans, my favorite, after two weeks of having it. So, again, that's a silly little story of temptation, right? If I ate the pizza, was that a sin? No, but it would have been disappointing because then I had to start over, and I also felt like I couldn't do that because Stephanie was being accountable. We were being accountable to each other. Um, there were also some nights I woke up in a panic with nightmares because I, I dreamed that I was drinking soda. And I'd be like, well, no, i got to start over. Okay, it was just a dream. Okay. But anyway, so that was the last time, you know, a silly story that I was seriously tempted to just take a bite of pizza. So today, if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 4, and if you've read this, the, the heading or you have the little sheet here, you're going to see this is the story of when Jesus was tempted by Satan. Right? This is a little bit more serious than pizza. But before we dive into this text, I just want to clarify two quick things about what the Bible says about temptations. That way we aren't confused, and that way we are all in the same understanding. So the, the first thing I want to say, and this, this isn't on your notes, is this. Being tempted is not a sin. Okay? Being tempted is is not a sin, but rather when you give in to that temptation, that's when it is a sin, right? So it says Jesus was tempted. We're going to be reading that. Jesus was tempted, yet as, as Christians, as our Lord and Savior, we say that he was sinless. So if being tempted was a sin and Jesus was tempted, then we're lying by saying he was sinless. Also, the Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 2, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews chapter 2, For he himself, Jesus, has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. So because Jesus was tempted, he can help us as we are being tempted. So right off the bat, being tempted is not a sin according to the Bible. However, Giving in and falling into temptation is when it becomes a sin. And the second thing is this. It's not a matter of if we are tempted, but when we are tempted. And I read James, and I read that for a reason. In James, he says this, Count it all joy when you meet various trials, or trials of various kinds. Not if, but when. Right? Just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we get this supernatural bubble of a protection where we're going to be safe and nothing bad's going to happen to us and we're never going to be tempted and life's going to be perfect. No, the Bible doesn't say that at all. If anything, following Christ makes us more of a target for Satan to tempt us and to deceive us and to lure us away from Christ and God's will. So again, being tempted, it's not a sin. And it's not a matter of if, but when we are tempted. So with that, let's read Matthew chapter 4. I'll read verses 1 to 11, and then we'll just go section by section slowly. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him on a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we, we know that your word is true. As we sang earlier in the service, you are faithful to your promises. We thank you so much for the encouragement that we can receive in your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that makes your word active and alive. And I just pray, Lord, that during this time together as a church, we can just grow in our faith, grow in our love of you. I pray that we're reminded of the gospel message that you loved us so much that Jesus died for us, for our sins on that cross. So I just pray that we can use this time and be led by the Spirit. I pray, Lord, for discernment and wisdom uh, as I handle your word. I love you, we love you, and in your holy name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So a little bit of context, right, before we go into these verses. This is before Jesus' public ministry. Usually when we're preaching in the gospel, I always say, oh, this is in the middle of his ministry, this is towards the end of his ministry, but this is in the very beginning, before any miracles happened and before Jesus did any sort of public preaching as Jesus. He was baptized by John the Baptist in, in the previous chapter to this. That was the, the, the last section right before Matthew chapter 4. And we read that the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus like a dove, and that also the, God the Father speaks with an audible voice saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So again, in, in Matthew chapter 3, during Jesus' baptism, that happens right before this, it's Jesus' kingship being bestowed upon him by God the Father. He's affirmed by God as his son. God's blessing is being poured out onto Jesus. And not long after that, we see Satan coming to try to destroy God's blessing. We know in, in Mark's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel, Mark says, and immediately after Jesus' baptism, the Spirit led him into the wilderness. So he says immediately. right? So I want to pause for a minute here and let me just say this, before we get into this story, throughout the scriptures we can see certain ways that Satan likes to operate. And here's one of them. Whenever God blesses, it isn't too long after that that Satan likes to show up and try to destroy that blessing. It happened with Adam and Eve in the garden, and now we see it happening here with Jesus. Jesus, what God has blessed, Satan likes to come in and to try to steal that blessing away. Again, he's baptized, he receives the blessing from the Father, and now Matthew chapter 4, we see Satan showing up to try to tempt and entice Jesus away from the Father. So Satan tempts Jesus in three different ways. We'll go through each one of them individually. If you have your notes, 
The first one is Satan tries to make Jesus doubt. Satan tries to make Jesus doubt, specifically God's care for him. God's care for him. In verse 1, we see that Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So for whatever reason, he's led into the wilderness, and some commentators believe that he was uh, led there to be in communion with God, to be in fellowship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit as he's preparing for his public ministry, as he's preparing for the cross, that he knows that what lies ahead of him. And at the end of verse 1, he says, he's led by the Spirit, by God, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And we can discern, right, when we read Luke's account of this story, that it seems like throughout Jesus' whole 40 days in the wilderness, Satan kept tempting and tempting and tempting and tempting Jesus. And then we see here in Matthew, he zooms in at the end of the 40 days, and we see three specific ways at the end of 40 days where Satan tries to tempt Jesus. So verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, I love this, he was hungry. Now just take a moment, think about that. Like really think, don't just read it and pretend it's, oh, this is a cute little story. 40 days and 40 nights without food. There's been times where I've maybe skipped dinner or lunch, and at the end of the day I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm starving, I'm going to die, I need food. Right? But 40 days. And Luke tells us he went without food, and Mark also tells us he's isolated from people. He's living with the wild beast in the land, in the wilderness. 40 days, 40 nights, no food. And I did a little bit of research, right? Without food, I, and as to the best of my knowledge, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but without food, our bodies start to break down. Right? First, they break down fat, and then once the fat runs out, they break down our muscles, and our muscles become smaller and weaker. Our bones actually become thinner as well. You can, you can break your bones more easily. Your skin becomes more and more dry, and, be, and you feel cold because of poor blood circulation. And usually with fasting, it affects you emotionally, not just physically, but emotionally as well. And I just want to point out here, Jesus, because of his humanity, right? we see he's hungry, right? God doesn't have to eat, but Jesus, in his humanity, being fully man, had to eat. He was hungry. He's at a weakened physical state. He's fasted 40 days, 40 nights. He's hungry. And if there was an opportune, the best moment for Satan to attack Jesus, it would be right now at the end of these 40 days and 40 nights. And he does. In verse 3, Satan comes to Jesus and says this, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And I don't know if you notice how Satan starts that questioning, but he starts it like this. If you are. Right? If you are the Son of God. He's trying to test Jesus. He's trying to test Jesus to make Jesus prove to Satan that he is the Son of God. The first temptation we see here, it's trying, Satan's trying to appeal to Jesus' physical body, his flesh, his hunger. And what Satan is really saying is this, Jesus, you don't need to be hungry. You don't need to. If you are God's Son and he truly loves you, shouldn't God feed you? Why don't you just feed yourself? If you're a son of God, you don't need to be hungry. You have the power. Make those stones into bread and eat them. You don't have to be hungry anymore. What are you waiting for? And in this temptation, again, Satan is trying to get Jesus to use his divine power to selfishly supply what God had not given Jesus yet. 
Remember, Jesus is being led by the Spirit, by God, into the wilderness, and he's relying on God to provide for him. And it's been 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. In verse 4, we see Jesus' response. He says this, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, which, again, Deuteronomy is a reminder of the Israelites and getting their food in the wilderness, their manna, that really came from God's word, God's command. Ultimately, it wasn't the bread that kept them alive, but it was God who sustained them. It was by God's word that they were fed and that they were provided for. And Jesus, when he says this, has answered to Satan, he's saying this, it's better to obey and to depend on God, waiting on his provision, than to satisfy yourself apart from the Father. So that's what Jesus is saying. And, and this is Satan's first attempt to try to get Jesus to sin. And as Christians, I think it's important to remember that we should be waiting on God's provision for us. Right? We live in a culture of, of now. We want things now. And I don't want to wait. I'll just order it from Amazon. Maybe I'll get it the next day, or I could even get it tonight if I order it in the morning. Right? We want things now. We live in a culture that's all about me and now. But I love what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. He says this, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We also sang that first song this morning, and the, and the lyric was this, In the silence, in the waiting, still we can know you are good. Right? So when we're in a season of silence or, or waiting, or maybe we, we feel like we're going through the wilderness like the Israelites, the encouragement is to wait on God's provision. Don't try to selfishly satisfy yourself. Wait on God and his timing. So the first thing, Satan tries to make Jesus doubt God's care for him. Right? Jesus, if you're hungry, shouldn't God feed you? If you're hungry, why don't you make that, that stone into, into bread? The second temptation we see Satan doing is Satan tries to get Jesus to test his father's love for him. Satan tries to get Jesus to test his father's love for him. In verse 5, Satan brings Jesus up to the holy city and he sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now there's a little bit of a debate of, of what, or where the pinnacle is in the temple, but just know this, he sets him on top of something very high, on top of the temple, overlooking the holy city, and it's high enough that if Jesus were to fall or, or, or throw himself down, he would die. So they're high up, and in verse 6, again, we see Satan say this, if you are the Son of God, right? If you are, but this time he tells Jesus to throw yourself down, throw yourself off the pinnacle. And in verse 6, what's, what's scary here is Satan actually quotes Scripture. He quotes God's Word to back up this temptation to Jesus. He quotes from Psalm 91. He tells Jesus, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So again, Satan knows God's word. And he probably knows it better than we do. The only thing is he doesn't submit to it. He doesn't care for it. He doesn't submit to it. But he knows God's word enough to use it on Jesus. But also, Satan loves to twist the meaning of Scripture, to twist God's word, to distort it. And he takes this beautiful psalm that's all about trusting in God to try to justify to Jesus that he should test God Put God's love to the test. 
And I was reading this article, and I just want to quote from it because I really liked how the author was, was talking about this specific example here. He says this, There are acceptable and unacceptable ways to test God. In this specific situation, Satan was telling Jesus to jump off, jump off the temple and prove that God's word was true by trying to force God's hand into action. If Jesus was in peril, God would have to save him. He was trying to manipulate a situation in an attempt to coerce God into fulfilling his promises. Again, Jesus' response in verse 7, he says, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He quotes again from Deuteronomy, and this specific example in Deuteronomy is when the Israelites are grumbling to Moses, and they want to put God to the test, and they angrily want and demand that, jo, uh, that Moses produce water from, from the stone where there was no water, and that's in Exodus 17. So again, Satan is he's trying to have Jesus force God to show his care, to show his love for him with a test, but Jesus doesn't give in. And I was thinking of just an example of, of, uh, of what is a modern-day thing or foolishness to say, and, and what I thought of was this. I'm going to blindfold myself, and I'm going to walk straight across Middle Country Road without even looking, because guess what? God loves me, and he'll care for me, and he'll protect me. Right? That, that's foolishly putting God's promises to the test. In the same way, right, we've been giving a, a brain with common sense. We should look both ways. We should try to act as safe as we can. Instead of purposely putting ourselves in harm's way and saying, well, God, you have to show up. You said you're going to save me and protect me and that you love me. If you really love me, you'd, you'd save me. That's what Satan was trying to get Jesus to do. Force God's hand by this temptation to throw himself off of the temple. And what's scary, again, he's twisting Scripture. He's twisting it. As Christians, we see Jesus' perfect faith in God the Father, and we can be reminded that God's word is trustworthy and true. As Christians, we are to accept God's word by faith without requiring any sort of signs, but rather know that his promises are there for us when we need them. And I just quoted, I found two verses here that, that just sum up, again, God's word. Psalm 119, it says, The sum of your word is truth. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. John 17, 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer when he's praying to God the Father, he says, Sanctify them in your truth, or sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So God's word is truth. Number one, Satan tries to make Jesus doubt God's care for him. Second thing is Satan tries to get Jesus to test his father's love for him. And the third thing we see here, the third temptation, Satan tries to get Jesus to submit to his way, submit to Satan's way rather than God's way. Satan tries to get Jesus to submit to his way rather than the father's way. Verse 8, Satan brings Jesus somewhere high in the mountain and he shows them all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory and all of their power, all of their majesty. And in verse 9, he tells Jesus that he will give everything he sees. He will deliver all of these kingdoms over to Jesus if he just bows down and worships Satan. And the Bible is clear that God has given Satan certain dominion and power over the earth. In 2 Corinthians Paul refers to Satan as, as the god of this world, the ruler of this world. So what Satan is doing is he's offering up the world to Jesus on his terms, 
on Satan's terms, not according to God's plan. Ultimately, Satan is offering Jesus the authority over earth now without the pain, without the suffering of dying on the cross, without being our Savior. All he wants Jesus to do is to worship him instead of worship, worshiping his heavenly Father. And in verse 10, Jesus finally has enough and he commands him. And I, and I picture Jesus is shouting at this, this, the audacity of this request, right? Jesus, worship me, not your heavenly Father. He commands Satan. He says, be gone, Satan. Be gone, Satan. And again, he continues to quote from Deuteronomy. You shall, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In verse 11, we see Satan leaving Jesus. And then this beautiful sentence, the angels came and ministered to Jesus. Now, we don't know what exactly that ministering looked like. We don't know if it was at this, po that, this point where maybe God provided food for Jesus. But I have to think the angels are probably worshiping Jesus and caring for him, praying with Jesus, praying for Jesus. It reminded me of a story in, in 1 Kings 19. Uh, I, I don't know if you, if you know the story. It's the story of Elijah. Uh, he, he just had a, a God show-off or a God showdown. He challenged all the prophets of Baal to say, okay, let's see if your God is real and let's see if my God is real. Whoever's God can send fire down from heaven to consume the offerings is the real God. And from that story, this is 1 Kings um, chapter 18, we see that Elijah, God shows up, sends fire down, consumes his offering, and because of this victory, they kill all the prophets of Baal, all these false idol worshipers. And that was a big victory for Elijah. It was a huge victory. God showed up. God provided for him. God showed his power. But then right after that, we get this. And I want to read this from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 to 8. Right after this, we read, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Again, he killed the prophets. How he killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. So she's saying, Elijah, by this time tomorrow, I'm going to kill you. You're dead. Then Elijah was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And as he lay down, and he slept under the broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food, Get this, 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. So when I read that the angels are ministering to Jesus, I thought of this story with Elijah and the angels ministering to Elijah, giving him food, providing for him, where he's saying to God, God, just kill me. I, I, he ditches all his servants. He runs a full day into the wilderness to hide. And God's not finished with him. And we see the angel providing for him. So again, looking back to Jesus' responses to Satan, during this temptation, I can sort of summarize everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus believed in one sentence. And this is something that maybe 
we should, if you want to write it down, you can. But this is something that we can see Jesus believed by his actions and how he spoke to Satan. He said this, I will trust God and his word, and I will not deviate from his will. I will trust God and his word. I will not deviate from his will. And ultimately, when we sin, when, when we fall into temptation and sin, we're, we're taking glory, we're taking worship away from God and His holiness, and we're putting it on ourselves selfishly. We're giving into our own desires, the desires of our own flesh. And we need to remember that God alone is worthy of our praise and worship. In First Chronicles 29, this is what the author says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. And at the, I'm, I'm, as I'm wrapping up here, there's a few applications at the end, at the bottom of your notes here that I just want to go through together and I want to encourage us as a church. The first thing is this. Satan will keep coming. And I know I just said I want to encourage us, and I just said Satan is going to keep coming. Right? From, from Luke's account of the story, he ends with this, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. So we see here that Satan is going to come back in an opportune time again to tempt Jesus. Satan will continue to attack and to attack, especially in our moments of weakness, as we can see, after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, he comes to Jesus to tempt him. But not only that, Satan also likes to come right after we've received blessing from God to try to twist it and try to distort it and try to make it evil. What God has made good, he likes to try to make evil and make us doubt. Peter calls him a hungry lion who is always seeking someone to devour. A lion that's hungry, that eats, 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 and is never satisfied. He says Satan is like a lion, constantly on the prowl, constantly looking for someone to devour. And as Christians, we need to be on guard constantly and not underestimate Satan's power or think that he'll go away forever. And here's the encouragement, right? James tells us in chapter 4 of his book, he says this, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and God will draw near to to you. Right? So I don't want us to just think that once we become a Christian or, or once we fend off Satan and his temptations once in our life, that, that he'll never come back. If that's the case, we're going to easily fall and be surprised when Satan shows up again. But if we're on guard, if we resist the devil, James says he will flee from us. If we draw near to God, God will draw near to us. So again, Satan will keep on coming. The second application is God's word is our weapon against temptation and against Satan. God's word is our weapon. You probably noticed this, but every time that Satan tempts Jesus, what does he do? He quotes from Deuteronomy. He quotes from God's word. That's his offensive attack on Satan. For each temptation, he had God's word armed and ready. He wasn't like, oh, what is it in the Torah? Let me, let me find it in Deuteronomy. What did Moses write here? Uh, no, Jesus had it armed and ready to go. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul uses a soldier's armor as a metaphor to help us and to help the church in Ephesus understand 
that we as Christians are in a spiritual battle, right? You might look around and physically like, I don't, I'm not in battle. I don't see any wars going on. But spiritually, we are in a battle. Paul says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And he says, Because of that, therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, stand firm. So Paul's encouragement is to put on the armor of God, to have your feet planted, to stand firm in the armor of God, and you'll withstand Satan. And the armor, he says, is the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes for our feet with the readiness given by the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. Those are all defensive armors. The only offensive weapon Paul tells us as a Christian that we have, he says this, it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. When I was little, and when I was in Sunday school here at the church, I had a hardcover Bible. Not This is a soft one, but I had a hardcover Bible, and because I was just a little punk of a kid, after I learned this, I'd go around and hit my friends on their shoulders and be like, sword of the Spirit, sword of the Spirit, and just have like sword fights with my Bible and hit them with it. right? But in all honesty... This is our offensive weapon. This is how we combat Satan and temptation through God's word, the sword of the Spirit. But in order, we, are, I, we need to know the word of God to be able to effectively use it. I think there is a scene in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, and I haven't seen it in a while, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think uh, Edmund, is that his name? Edmund? I think. Ed, Edmund, right? I, okay. He, he, he gets a sword, he receives a sword, and immediately he like, drops to the ground, and he's trying to swing, and he's trying to fight with it. He's not skilled with it. And, and that causes him trouble in battle. In the same way, if we have our Bible, but we never use it, we never read it, we don't memorize it, we don't use it at all, but rather it's just, okay, I have my sword of the Spirit right here on the side. But when Satan attacks, and we're not prepared with, with knowing God's Word, we're in trouble. We need to know it in order to combat Satan. Right, so, what does that mean? Read the Word. Read God's Word. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Study it. Preach it. And I'll be very honest. I, I, again, I struggle to read God's Word daily. And I'm just being very honest. And as I was preparing the sermon, I was just so convicted because I'm like, okay, I'm going to be preaching and encouraging the church to read the Word. And there are times where I don't want to. And shame on me. And, and I... I think if we're being honest, we've probably felt all that way before. But again, as encouragement, we don't read God's word to somehow appease or please God or, or to make him happy, right? We read God's word so that we can know him. Because we're, we want, if we're in a relationship with him, we want to know more about him. We want to know his promises that he has for us. We want to know his character that he's revealed for us in his word. And that's when we can say, you know what, God, when I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Right? Little, when you memorize Scripture and use it like that, it's an encouragement. Rather than, you know, when we face trials and you don't know God's words, when you face temptations, you can collapse. You can be overcome by them. But if you know God's word, you treasure it in your heart, you meditate on it day and night, it's an encouragement for your soul. You can combat the temptations can combat Satan. Again, we need to know the Word of God to be able to use it effectively in combat. And the third application is this. 
There's forgiveness for those who give in to temptation. There's forgiveness for those who give in to temptation. Don't do it, but I'm going to ask you a question. If I asked everybody in here to raise their hand if they fell into temptation or if they've sinned this week, I guarantee all of our hands would be up. And if it's not, talk to me because I'd like to know what you're doing that I'm doing wrong. Right? But all of our hands would, and we wouldn't be happy about it. We would be shameful. We'd feel guilty. We'd feel bad about it. Right? And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts us of our sins. And here's the reality. When we become Christians, we've now made an enemy of Satan and his demonic forces. We are in his crosshairs. He wants to destroy us. He wants to take away the glory that belongs to God. And the Bible is clear that we've all sinned. Every single one of us have sinned, and we will continue to sin for the rest of our lives. But here's the encouragement. There's forgiveness, there's grace, there's mercy for those who seek repentance from God, for those who confess their sins to God. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive, forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Right? As God is holy and sinless, and here I am a sinner, I don't have to come before God and, and, and say, oh my gosh, God, are you going to zap me? Are you going to smite me? I, I don't, I, I'm a sinner. I, I deserve it. But rather, we're clothed in Jesus' robes of righteousness. As we sang, we're, we're adopted as sons and daughters. We're children of God. And because of that, we can confidently draw near to the throne of grace and receive grace from God if we confess our sins to him. There's forgiveness. Where we've fallen into temptation and sinned, we have a perfect sinless Savior who was tempted and remained sinless. We have a Savior who died on the cross for our sins. It's because of Jesus that we can confess our sins to God and have forgiveness. It's because of Jesus that we have the power to no longer be slaves to sin, be slaves to our selfish desires. In Christ, we have been fully forgiven because of His grace, and because of the blood that was shed on the cross for us, he took the punishment that we rightfully deserved. Right? As we sing, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Jesus died on the cross, taking on our sin and shame. I want to end with this. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. This is what Paul writes. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, Verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Praise God for his mercy, his grace, and his love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true. I pray, Lord, that this morning can be an encouragement for us that we can put on the whole armor of God that we can effectively use the sword of the Spirit, which is your word. I pray, Lord, that you can strengthen us if we're feeling weak, 
I pray, Lord, that we can come before you if we've fallen into temptation, if we're living in a constant sin, and confess it to you. I pray, Lord, and we just praise you that, and we thank you that there is forgiveness when we confess our sins to you. So, God, we just praise you this morning. We thank you that you're faithful to your promises. Thank you that you never change. Jesus, we thank you for coming down from heaven to earth and dying on the cross in my place, in our place. I pray, Lord, that as a church, we can wait in your provision, in your will. God, I pray that you will continue to lead us through, just through where we're, we're heading into right now. God, I just pray that we never forget how much you love us and how much we've been forgiven. We thank you, Jesus, for all the blessings you've given us. In your holy name we pray. Amen.